throwing one of his toys across the room at him, and he never saw his dad again. Uh, part of the outcome of that was he loved his mum all the more. But growing up and on into teenage years, he had a percolating feeling in the background of his mind that he was going to have to look after himself because people abandon him, they walk out, they leave. By the time he'd reached the age of 16, 17, he was pretty self-sufficient. Uh, he was very quick-witted, so he was able to deflect trouble. He learned how to use his fists, and the way in which he comforted his heart and got a sense of purpose for himself was by drinking heavily and chasing the ladies, at which he was very good. And by the time he reached his early 20s, uh, he was absolutely determined he could be the kind of guy that he wanted to be. He could establish himself. He didn't need to worry about the people who demanded him. And yet, and yet, he had this background sense that bad things can happen. And when they do, you are powerless to do anything about it. In his early 20s, he came into contact with a Christian who was very direct with the gospel with him. And in only a matter of weeks, he'd been introduced to a God who owned the world, ran the world, against whom we have sinned, set our hearts on other things, and before whom one day we must give account. Now Jack was totally unsettled by this, but that he was drawn in by the idea of a God who would not abandon even when we have failed. Echoes came back to his younger life, wondering what had he done that contributed to the fact he'd never actually seen him dad again. Probably never would. The weight of it like, weighed heavy upon him. And the idea of forgiveness and free grace through Jesus Christ, paying for his sin and drawing him to a new life, just dragged him in. And with excitement and hope, he repented of his sins, he trusted in Jesus, and he threw himself into getting into the Bible. And life started to turn. Uh, some of his old habits and ways of going about things, the appeal of them just dropped away in the face of knowing who Jesus was. He started to learn the Bible, he started to be gathered around by uh, Christian men and women who were slightly older, slightly more mature, and he said, that's who I want to be, I think I'm going to be able to get there. And he was growing in Christian ministry, and he was serving, and he was reaching out in his community, and people who were even coming to faith through who he was and what he did. But it was only a few years later, an unexpected thing once again came into his life. Through a series of difficult encounters, he discovers that a trusted Christian mentor and friend was playing false with him. And this trusted Christian mentor and friend effectively betrayed him and left all the blame upon him. He was surprised by how much it walloped him, but as Jack pondered, he tried to shrug it off in his own strength. He prayed, Lord, would you help me to understand? He asked, Lord, could you sort this mess out? But it seemed that as the weeks and the months moved forward, it was getting more and more difficult. And then the voices started. Not audible voices, although sometimes some people do hear them. But inside of him, the questions were percolating and spinning around. Why has God given me this? Why hasn't he taken this away? And he prayed on this. But as he did, the thoughts and the accusations against him and the world started to take a darker and darker turn. 
And day by day, he was feeling more and more of his days being dominated by what I tend to call intrusive thoughts. Have you ever been there? When something just percolates in your head and you just cannot let it go. And it just sits there darkening everything. And his joy and hope in Jesus was starting to die away. His optimism about life was slipping. He was headed in the direction of a dark night of the soul. This thorn, this this issue, this thing that had come into his life that he had not wanted seemed to be controlling his all day and his every day with no prospect of it coming to an end. I thought God cared. I thought God wouldn't abandon. It's not long since it started a new relationship and that was beginning to turn sour because of his emotional inability to cope with this seeming disaster that had come into his life. And so when we sat and spoke, why is God giving me something I don't want? I've prayed, but nothing has changed. Now, as you listen to that story, do you get the sign? God had given, but God had given two things in Jack's life. I've got a little diagram to think about this. I wonder as you do, whether you can identify with it. This is brilliant drawing. <laughs> See, there's Jack at the start of his walk of faith, and he had been given something to all. He'd been brought at a point to his life through God's words in the midst of the circumstance where he was ready, willing, and able by God's grace to accept something of who God is. That's where he started. And did you notice how his life started to grow and change? There was joy and there was hope, there was worship, there was effectiveness in his walk. There was a sense of forgetfulness of some of the things that had happened in the past. And it's going up and it's going up. And just at the point where it doesn't seem to be needed or fit in his eyes from his vantage point where he can see, in came Thorn. And we've been learning about Thorn over the last few weeks, haven't we? We've been learning and using that phrase because it is once spoken by one of the greatest Christians who has ever walked planet Earth. Somebody who was used by God uniquely, the Apostle Paul. And he spoke about a moment in his life when he was pierced. Now, when you think of thorns, don't think of little ones on roses. Think of spikes that when they drive into you, all they do is do damage. And a thorn entered Jack's life. And what I want you to notice is a period. You see it there? What is happening in the period there? It feels like everything is unraveling. It feels like everything is coming apart. And because he was a good Christian, what did he do? He prays, Lord, take this thing away from me. Do something. Make a difference. Alter it. And then a decline comes. And self-talk is in there. And the questioning. This can't be good. I thought you were good. Now can I tell you that for any of us who've ever been in that period, it's a dark night of the soul, isn't it? It's a horrible situation. 
and it's a dark place to be in. If you know something of the Lord, you will be in some way reaching out, asking with your questions, putting people around you who hopefully will be able to help. But so often for such a prolonged period of time, you don't hear a voice that changes things. What you experience is silence. You're broken. Now I'm talking to people who are in different situations here. Some of you haven't even got to here yet. You're particularly welcome. You've got a good day coming. It's a gift because God gives. He wants to give you the very best thing that he has. And what is the very best thing he has? Himself. Salvation of his son. Forgiveness of sins. Being brought into his community of people. He wants to give you a gift. Nothing better. Some of you are about there. You know, every now and again, as elders and as me as a pastor, I, I evaluate the things that are going on in the life of the church and the life of people in here. And every now and again, it's felt a lot more rare than uh, in recent times. Uh, my, 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 my observation is like, oh, we seem to be on the straight and narrow. And at which point I gird up my loins, I pray and say, Lord, make us ready because I know sooner or later, guess what's coming? Because he gives. He gives. He gives. Some of us are there, and I realise that almost every word out of my mouth when you are there is obnoxious. It hurts you. Please don't shoot the messenger. There are seasons that we go through. Sometimes it's the severity of the spike that's coming up. And there are seasons when things happen in here that surprise us by how vulnerable we are, by how much life can hurt, by our natural distance from the Lord of life. Even to a point where down here, I probably have stopped even asking. And that's as far as I can get in the diagram for the moment. But if you were in this period, know that the Lord knows. And know that Scripture speaks about this period an awful lot. Let's go back to it and have a little look. So if you're in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, have a look at verse 7. We talked last week about how the Lord has an agenda and Paul looking back on this whole situation was saying there is a purpose in it. There's a purpose in the pain. There's a plan and it is to keep you. And I will keep you from greater ruin than you can imagine. But my process of keeping you from greater ruin than you can imagine Sometimes it's a painful tinge. But because I love you, I will not let you go. I will keep you. And as part of that process, we find that the Lord gives. He gives. And you see it there in verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was 
What's it say? Given. Given me. Given me something I didn't want. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And what I want you to notice at this point is that in this passage, Paul's talk spoken about two things that he has been given from the Lord. In the first part of the chapter, he's talked about the surpassingly great uh, revelations that he's been given, an encounter with God himself, drawn up into the third heaven, the one, the presence where God was. In a unique way, this apostle got something that nobody else got, a depth of experience of the living God, of his grace, his mercy, his purposes, a sense of what was going on in the world. A larger version, a personalised version of what every believer gets when they enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We do to some degree get invited into the heavenlies and we are united with Christ and standing with him. That's who we are and what we experience. And Paul says, I was given that, I had it, it was, from, it was a grace gift from the living God to me. But that wasn't the only thing, as I got my blessing... He decided to wound. To keep me, he flattened me. And interestingly, which one of these gifts does Paul labour speaking about? Which one seems to have been the most formative? Which one does he want this Corinthian church who were overly expressed with the idea of having a designer life egged on by these outside teachers who say, be strong in yourself. You don't need to just uh, have Jesus. You don't even need to be like him. You can be strong and you'll get the job done for God. Which one does Paul talk about? Which one is the making of him? Going into heaven? Or being broken? Now, depending on where you are in this diagram, that will feel differently to you. If you're here, you'll be like, uh-oh, can I just stay there, please? If you're here, no good thing can come out of this. But many of us in this room, where are we? We've walked with the Lord. We've had dark days of the soul. And where are we? We've come through with a great sense of his sufficiency, of his abundance. One of the things that my friends Jack is intrusive thoughts. I love working with, walking with people who on a day-by-day basis are very aware of how under threat they are. Temptation, doubt, painful thought processes. Remember, the way you think, the direction of your thoughts will be the direction of your life. What you spend your time dwelling on will impact your emotions, the way that you see everything. And as I spoke with Jack, he was in a daily battle. And here's the reason that I appreciated walking with him. He, bless me, 
Because at that particular point, I wasn't there. But guess what? Walking with somebody who is there, feeling a daily battle, helps me keep pushing and reminding me that though Satan sometimes his strategy isn't to wound, it is to bless. In those moments of self-sufficiency, it's pure, I'm purely feeling self-sufficient because I'm blind to spiritual realities. And so where do we find Paul? We find Paul saying, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now Paul has been there, he's been at the heights. And this period we find the thorn, recorded in scripture, was 14 years ago. It was something that on a daily basis, he felt it, its presence was there. We don't know what it was. Was it a betrayal? like Jack experienced? Was it a physical deformity that undermined his credibility? Was it an illness? Was it an accident? We don't know what it was, but we know that it was prolonged and daily. It was, if you like, his new normal. Sometimes things come, spikes come, and they change everything, and we've got a new normal. Some, maybe a part of our life that we really appreciated and wanted gets taken away from us and it's a new normal. Maybe it's something that we look and say, I would like that to be a part of my life, but it feels like it is slipping away. I don't think I can have it. And that is my normal. And it's a day by day dominance. But notice the means, the description of the means here, the instrument of God's giving. Does this surprise you? A messenger of Satan. Shall I say that again? A messenger of Satan. What is going on? An emissary of the adversary, of our adversary was sent by God, given by God, to do something in our life. God permitted the devil to harass me, says the Apostle Paul. Now please understand that the devil is not the equal of God. He is not omniscient, he is not omnipresent, and he's certainly not omnipotent. He hasn't got the power. He has to get permission. He has to get permission. But if he's somebody who needs permission, what does that also mean for us? It means that if he uh, needs permission, if that permission is withdrawn, he cannot do any more. So the apostle can say that God gave and God's functional cause in that moment of this pain, of this thorn, was Satan and his lies and his strategies. But the ultimate cause was the living God. I feel almost blasphemous saying this. You need to believe and you need to know that the devil is God's devil. He is a created being. And even he will bend and be used for the ultimate good purposes of the sovereign Lord who is gracious and good to his people. Let me tell you that no devil in hell can, can do what God does not permit on that. And Paul knew this. And he was able to say, evil is evil. 
and it was done with evil intent by the devil. And that's the way we, we need to come to understand these things, because this messenger of Satan, the pain that was coming at him, the problems and the adversities, the affliction that he was experiencing, Paul was able to say simultaneously it was evil because it was done with evil intent on the part of Satan. He intended to ruin. He intended to drag Paul off mission and away from his purpose in life, which was knowing and enjoying the goodness of God and serving God's purpose for the glorifying of God. And Satan was like, right, I can use this. In my, the life of my friend Jack, I can use this betrayal. And I will sow all those lies into his head. And it will be his demise. And he will start to doubt the living God. And that was Satan's plan. In the midst of doing it, you thought God loved you. He's not really there. I'll tell you that when you're in those times when you feel that sense, you almost feel that voice. Please know that is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. We are people who will be influenced by the enemy of our soul, sometimes through the ways of the world. He loves to get us to interpret our problems through a, um, a worldly and godless lens, to make sense and use language to explain what we're going through. And the enemy will sit back, let that loose in us, and he will intend it for murderous purposes. He will try and pull his people away from the living God. But if that was one side of what was going on and being experienced by the Apostle Paul, after the fact, he was able to say, but God had a purpose in this because it was his purpose to do a good work. There was a gracious purpose, even using the fiendish purpose of this messenger of Satan. Even when Satan is trying to get going, God is like, I'm still God. I will use this, not to break them, but to make them. That is what I will do. And God does that in such a way that his hands aren't dirty. And he has not done evil. He is working an amazing good. I want to take you to another example of where this is playing out in Scripture. Who else? received the attack of Satan and hadn't got a clue what was going on. Turn to Job chapter 1. Turn to Job chapter 1. We see yet another encounter in scripture where somebody goes through this cycle. He goes through this experience and it is brutal. The Bible isn't lax when it comes to talking about the realities of suffering and pain. And please know that God's verdict on Job's life at the start of the book is that Job was doing all the right things. Remember, there can be multiple reasons why thorns and difficulties come into our life. Sometimes it can be for correction, because we're pursuing and going after and living for the wrong things, and the Lord pulls us up, and we're like, why are you doing this to me? Uh, because I love you. It could be for correction, because we need it. 
because we're living life in our own strength and not living it for his glory. It could also be because of prevention. It could be that we've got something coming down the track that unless we learn and grow in a particular area, we're not going to handle it. It could be for correction, it could be for prevention, it could be for formation. Quite often, I mean, if you take the letters of Peter where he talks about how the Lord is, is, he says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that you go through. Because in them, they are forming within you a beauty that echoes Jesus. And here's the one that you really don't want me to say. It could be correction, it could be prevention, it could be formation, or it could be illustration. And I think that was the one that was going on in Paul's life. An illustration that a life walked in weakness, trusting in the Lord, is where the real power is at. Guess what the Corinthian church needed to learn? They didn't want to live a cross-shaped life. They rejected and pushed against it. And Paul's painful experience, as well as being one of God's tools to keep him from his own spiritual ruin, it was being used to keep them from their spiritual ruin. It was an illustration. And here, poor Joe hasn't got a clue. Because we have this massive prolonged section of Job after we hear of his sufferings where it is just questionings and silence. Do you know that by the end of the book of Job, he doesn't get any answers as to what was going on? We do because we see from another vantage point. He doesn't. He never gets his questions answered. Instead, he gets an encounter with God that closes his mouth and fills him with joy and worship. He's content to walk in weakness more than ever. And so what do we find in Job chapter 1? We find that he is righteous. He doesn't know why these things have come in. But we see that there is a heavenly, uh, a heavenly drama that is playing out. You see, Satan has been sniffing around the world trying to find ways in which to ruin God's plans to bring grace and mercy to our lost humanity. And we see a little encounter in heaven where he says, where the Lord says, look at my servant Job. He's righteous and upright. And Satan comes along with his blasphemous lies and he draws attention, the Lord has drawn attention to Job. You can see it there in verse, somebody shout out the verse, verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And in come the blasphemous lies. Does Job fear God for nothing? And this is the blasphemy. In the presence of God, the enemy is saying, I get why he does that. It's not because you are good in and of yourself. It is not because you are worthy in and of yourself. It is not because you are the hope of the humanity that you have made. People aren't ultimately satisfied in you. Job loves you because you give him the goodies. He reshapes your life, uh, uh, you reshape his life in a way that he likes, and the second that that is taken away, he'll walk out. And this becomes actually the question of the book. Does Job fear God for no reason? It's one of the things that Paul is trying to impress upon the Corinthian church here. We love God for God. Not for the goodies he gives us. Because he's worthy and he is glorious. He spends early chapters of the book talking about the glory and the, the, the beauty and the purposefulness of, of knowing the God who made and loved us. But of course we want stuff. Saint says, Job, you just want stuff. Uh, Saint just says, Oh, Job, you just want stuff. You're giving it to him. You'll walk out pretty quick. And that's blasphemy. 
It's like the echo from the garden. He's saying, God, you aren't actually that worthy. The only reason people trust you is you give them stuff. And there's loads of lies there. He's saying, listen, God, you're nothing but somebody who is corrupt and insecure. You manipulate people with your toys. You're, you buy people's love and you bribe them with the things they want. Now, the thing is, that lie of Satan, that accusation, that's what most of my mates think of the re- is the reason that you're here today. The reason that you're here today is not because Jesus is glorious, because his salvation is life itself. It's because, come along, behave, do the right thing, and God will bring blessing to you. And so Job is here. He's wealthy, he's got a good reputation, he's got loads of peeps around him, he's got a whole, what's it called, a, a whole little domain, a whole paddock, a whole um, compound, about ten houses in there. And the Lord says, okay, you can take some of that stuff away, and we'll see. So the thorn comes in, and then begins 34, 35 chapters of anguish, all of which is questioned. And Job prays, can you give me some sort of reason for this? Please, could you help me understand it? By the time we get to chapter 3, he's cursing the day that he was born. He doesn't want to live anymore. It's that bad. He doesn't curse God, but he curses the fact that he's got breath in his body. And he's asking this question, why do I exist? What's even the point of my life? Have you ever been there? When you feel like you've got nothing to live for? You don't get it? And God has left you. You've been abandoned. What's my purpose? How can I go on with this thing happening to me or this thing not happening to me? I've prayed and nothing has changed. That whole 34 chapters should be just read and meditated on. If you're somebody who's walking with somebody who's going through a period of sorrow, it's a great section of scripture. We don't know quite for how long that questioning went on, but it was days, passing into weeks, maybe longer. Some people go through periods here where it was just agony and anguish. And the lies of Satan buffet and around all of it is, God gave me this. I don't want it. I don't want to walk. I'd rather live on the top of a mountain than in the dark valley. And yet Paul shifts. Paul shifts, doesn't he? He comes through it on his knees. His self-sufficiency is flattened before the eyes of the world. He's shown up for what the Lord always knew he was, which is not a winner and a champion, but a sinner in need of grace, who is richest when they're most poor, who is highest when they're most humble. When they have put off worrying in terms of worshipping, when they've got rid of their pout and put on praise, when they have found that God is enough. That's why he gives what we don't want. And he seems to tailor it in our life to press the buttons 
which was exactly where Jack was, which was exactly where Paul was, because he was fighting for his, his life in that Corinthian church because they wanted somebody who looked strong. So what does the Paul, what does the Lord do with Paul? Weaken him. So it may be apparent to all that the excellencies and power is not important. Wouldn't it have been easy for Paul to try, trade on and play to his myriad strengths and all? And that immediately would have made him useless in ministry. The Lord gave Paul. And of course, that first verse is looking back from somewhere else. Because Paul came through it. So as I sum up, can I give you a conclusion? Your biggest breakthrough with the Lord will come in, around, or immediately after the hardest points in your life. Your biggest growth in grace and enjoyment of God and usefulness in his kingdom and desire to praise will come in, around, or immediately after those hardest moments in life. That's why I've become a bit more steady when you come with your sorrows. I've become a little bit more anchored when I'm freaking out. Because I know that the Lord is showing up and he is giving. He is giving. He's not giving me. He's not giving me what I want. He's giving me what I need. When people come to me and they say, I've prayed and nothing has changed. I don't do this in front of them. But when they've gone, I get on my knees. Because the Lord is at work. He's always in, he's always turning things the wrong way around. When it appears he is losing, guess what he's doing? It appears when everything is going well, usually we're in the most spiritual danger. When somebody says, I prayed and nothing changed, this is where the action is at. Because I know sooner or later somebody's going to come and say, he gave me this. That word gave isn't just slip it under the table. It's an active entrusting in the Greek. A purposeful giving off. It's as if the Lord gives us pain and entrusts it to us. We might even be tempted to use the phrase, my pain. In the light of this, we have to change that. Because who's does it really belong to? He has given to us something and entrusted us with it. Inviting us to press through, push through to more of him. So for some of us, I want to say, you don't need God to take the struggle from you. You need God to do something in you in the struggle. And you will say, some of you, it's unbelievable you'll say this. Some of you will say, I don't like the thorn. But if it brings glory to my Saviour, if it 
leads me to a more dependent life with more joy. If it helps me to learn and know and taste painfully that his grace is sufficient, then Lord, I'll live with it. I'll live with it. I'll take on this new normal for however long it is with me. For Paul, we don't even know whether that period went. For Jack, he's back at dinner, waiting for the next one of these, which we always do. For Joe, many things were renewed. It changed. I can't tell you the way that the Lord's going to dish out what he gives to you. And so I'm wondering whether in our congregation here, is there anyone who can thank God for the stuff, not just for the stuff that you like that he gives you, but for the stuff that you don't like. Now that's for some of you, for others of you, I don't even want you to think about going there because you're there. And you feel abandoned. And when you're abandoned, it's hard just, or feel that way, it's hard just to look up. So for you, what would I say? I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis writing uh, a book, he called it Surprised by Joy. His wife, who he delighted in, had died and he sort of wrote a book that that detailed his process through grief, said he never knew such pain like it. But he wrote this in that book. When you are happy, you have no sense of needing him. In fact, you attempted to feel his claims on you are mere interruptions. If you are led into difficulty, Oh, sorry, no, 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 no. Um, if you were led, sorry, if you were led into these times of gratitude, you can praise him and he will welcome you with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all of the help seems vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting from the other side. He is so present a commander in our prosperity and so absent to help in our time of trouble. Now he doesn't leave it there because in the next paragraph he goes on and he talks about bringing this to a friend of his, a spiritual friend, in this time of loneliness and feeling abandoned by God. And his friend simply did one thing. He simply reminded C.S. Lewis that on the cross, Jesus not just was, but also felt abandoned. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken, abandoned me? And in that moment, this good friend changed C.S. Lewis's perspective. You see, neither the book of Job, nor even Paul's letter on its own, or our experiences in life can deal with this issue of 
of suffering. It just can't be done. But Jesus was blameless, like Job, sinless, unlike Job. And he went to a cross bearing the sins of the world, which tells us of his love. It tells us of his faithfulness. It tells us of his intention to keep and produce in his people something that will echo his glory and bless others around him. And he went to the cross carrying our sins. He went into a deeper suffering and sorrow than any mere human has ever or will ever experience, which means that he is the only one who can go far enough into a pit where we may be of feeling abandoned to bring us assurance that we are not. The cross is the promise that even though you feel abandoned, even though you are crying out and saying, I pray but nothing changed, you've given what I do not want, we look at the cross and we know that it's not the end of the story. Not only does he promise that he is upholding and keeping us when we have no sense of him, he promises that out of that cross he is bringing a resurrection. And if all you are able to do in that this moment is cling by the tips of your fingers to that hope, then that is faith in action. And that is pleasing to the Lord. Because that's what Job did. That's what the Apostle did. That's what countless people in this room have done. This is the life of faith in the purposes of God, as he not just claims us, but changes us and mobilises us to bring glory to him in a world that is addicted to vain strength. He will overcome, not just through the pain, but often in using the pain. He will defeat Satan's plans using Satan's plans to do that. And if ever you doubt that, you look at the cross. You look at the cross and see where as people scorned, he was saving. So we cry out to him and we ask for mercy. That's it again.